0: Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Lauren Nossett, whose debut novel, The Resemblance, has just been published. Lauren, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Charlie.
0: So, when I got first got the uh, the blurb about this novel from your publicist it described the resemblance as belonging to a genre called dark academia. And I'll be honest, I'd never heard the phrase dark academia before. So so tell us, what, what does that mean?
1: So it's a tradition that I, I think we could say stems from the campus novel. You know, the campus novel has been around for a while, but now post, I would say, Donna Tartt's The Secret History, um, which is, I think this year is its 30th year anniversary. We have this genre that takes place on a college campus but really highlights um, the dark themes and uh, sinister events that can happen when you have a group of young people or sometimes, you know, a faculty body that is somewhat insular and isolated and spends a lot of time together um, is often, competitive in nature, whether that's through academics or uh, Greek life organizations or, or other things going on on the college campuses that may lend itself to to mystery, murder, and mayhem. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a little bit about your own campus experience and how it sort of led to the writing of this novel.
1: Yeah, so I, I've spent the past 15 years or so on college campuses as first a student for a very long time. Um, I did a, a bachelor's and a master's at the University of Georgia. I also taught there for a little bit as an instructor. And of course the resemblance takes place on the University of Georgia's campus. And then I also, I did my PhD at UC Davis, which was another large or is another large research university. And then I taught as a professor, but at smaller liberal arts colleges, so at Elon University, and then also at Randolph-Macon College. So I've really seen both sides of the country, east and west, and then a variety in terms of college sizes. I'll say the the mystery that we have happen and the resemblance could not happen at um, at a large uh, at a smaller university this mm. this has to happen I think at a at a large university um, and then uh, in terms of Greek life too I of course as a student attended Greek life parties had a lot of friends in Greek life I myself was not in Greek life. Um, as a grad student, I lived next to a fraternity house. And so that was its own uh, individual experience. And then, of course, I've taught um, students who participated uh, in Greek life and at institutions where Greek life played a, a large role. Yeah,
0: yeah, I was just um, teaching a class at Elon the other day. So I, it was the first really? I I taught there before in their extension program. But this was the first time I had a break and I could kind of wander around the campus. And it's a, it's beautiful. But as you say, it's a very different kind of feel from something like the University of Georgia. Um, You know, tell us tell us why particularly you wanted to pick that university. And also, did you were there points where you had to sort of play around with the geography or anything like that to to fit your novel? Or did you try to be really true to the university itself?
1: So uh, I think you're, I'll answer the first part of the question um, about why UJ in particular, and then and then I'll talk a little bit about, about the campus and the, the buildings that feature in the novel. So to me, as someone who really likes this genre, I noticed as a reader of the genre that you often find these, these college campus settings at places like Oxford or New England liberal arts colleges, um, even colleges the size of Elon and a kind of location. Uh, Elon has a beautiful campus, right, with all the, the brick architecture and ivy crawling up the buildings. It's just stunning. And then it's it's somewhat isolated. It's in a small town where the you know university um you know is is the a big part of what's there. Uh, a big research university is just very different uh, in terms of the feel, even things like football culture, which doesn't play as big of a role in the novel, but, you know, its location in Athens, which has its own downtown, right? Um, It just is a a very different location than I think what you find um, in other campus novels. So that, that interested me. And then I wanted to, to play around with what this what this looks like um, at a bigger university and then in terms of the the setting I really so I spent a lot of time on the campus while I was writing I wasn't living in Georgia I was living in Virginia but I have family here and so would come back to Georgia and would visit the campus Uh, it is all the university buildings that are mentioned they do exist Uh, I you know walked Walked kind of around the university to make sure that things made sense. I drove some of the streets in question that play a role uh, in in the novel to make sure what I was saying and how I, I remembered. You know, uh, you know that 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 all played played out as I remember. Although I will say that I think the Athens that is represented there and even the university has a kind of nostalgic tinge in my mind. it's really the Athens of, you know 10, 15 years ago when I was there, more so than it is I think the Athens and University of today. there's there's buildings now that didn't exist when I was a student there. and um, I will say there's been more safety um, initiatives in place on some of the streets and questions like stop signs and stop lights and stuff like that too.
0: So without um, giving any spoilers, tell us a little bit about about the resemblance and about the main character.
1: So the resemblance is, as you said, it's it's in that uh, dark academia genre. It's a campus novel. It starts out with our lead detective, Marlett Kaplan. She's on campus visiting her mother, who is a university professor. She teaches German at the university. And she is essentially first on the scene to this fatal hit and run that takes place on the university campus. And for her own um, personal reasons and some of her own experiences, while she herself was in college, she immediately suspects that the university's Greek life plays a role in this death, um, which she she finds suspicious. Um, and then, so that leads her into to investigations into that into that world. Mm-hmm.
0: No, so a lot of the books I read, and this was one, um, this where this was the case too. I'm reading these advanced digital copies, and so I don't have the same impact with the cover of the book as if I were holding the copy in my hand. But I did see the cover of this book, and both the cover and the first few sentences really evoke uh, autumn. Uh, I mean, I'm sitting here right now with beautiful leaves falling outside my my window. Um, why why was that the right season and why did you want to sort of be sure that we knew going into the book that that's where we were for this particular story
1: i think when I think of a campus novel in dark academia, I immediately think fall. Of course we have both fall and spring semesters. They both exist in college. Sometimes you take a a summer term, but for me that back to school atmosphere, and I mean, and this too is someone who is from Georgia and it takes place in Georgia. It's really still hot when you go back to school in Georgia. I mean, and I can remember teaching and just sweating on the way to class. It's, it can still be 90 degrees in, you know, Early September here, but that's again why this is placed in November. So we actually have the the falling the falling leaves and that atmosphere. I think it plays into the the dark themes of Dark Academia too. The the days are getting shorter. You know, it's the sweater weather where you're, you you want to be indoors. There's something, of course, cozy about that, but there's something sinister too as the nighttime hours are lengthening. Um, there are, of course. Parties that are extending late into the evening, too, as well on university campus. In addition to late night cramming or whatever else the the students are getting into.
0: Yeah. So we, when I'm whenever I'm talking about um, a thriller or a mystery, we we tend to focus more on the beginning of the book because we don't want to give anything away. Um, and I remember having this discussion with my editor for one of my books where I had written a prologue. Um, and then my agent said, I think it's better without the prologue. So I took the prologue away and then we were in an editing and my editor said, would you consider writing a prologue? <laughs> and we had kind of gone back and forth. But you, this book does have a prologue. And I wonder if you could sort of give us your thoughts on the whole idea of the prologue, why why you wanted to use it, why it worked particularly well in this, in this novel.
1: So it's funny that you say that because I actually had a similar experience in yeah. that I wrote this prologue last. Mm-hmm. Uh, this I had a different prologue something that actually happens without any spoilers midway through the novel now um right before uh the transition to the second part mm-hmm. that was the first prologue and so uh we moved that prologue so it was more chronologically in line so instead of it being um a flashback in terms of what was going on in the plot it was then you know placed directly in the plot when it happened this prologue too is a flashback but it's to to something much earlier that happens and i think for thrillers a lot of times you you want something that hooks the reader. And because for me, I wanted the initial chapter to start with a focus on Athens and the setting and the college campus. That's a bit of a slower start when you're describing all of that that. beautiful setting, yes, but it's not as exciting as putting you into the action right away. So if you don't start your first chapter that way, a prologue is a good way to to jump into some action, even if it's a flashback before you get into the, the mystery. And then, of course, the other descriptions.
0: Well, of course, you know, you say you start with um, with kind of exploring Athens and with the university, and that means you also sort of immediately delve into the troublesome history of Southern institutions. You, how does the background of of cruelty, of racism, of slavery, of all that provide context for for what's going to happen in this novel?
1: I think it's a really for again, as a campus novel, uh, and it, it, the book wants to exist within that genre, but also critique it, right? Because often in campus novels or, or even dark ac- academia, well, maybe that's what the difference is. I think dark academia allows you to kind of critique this, these prestigious ac- institutions by examining darker themes or by examining the ways in which uh, universities, which have been traditionally and historically places of privilege um, and where privileged students Go um, that started as you know institutions that only allowed not only white but uh, land owning um, members to attend, students to attend. So it's it's not just racial, but it's also class. And of course, women weren't uh, initially able to attend either. So I think by starting with that way, by using this genre that highlights um, how such institutions can allow for um, for a continuation of those um systems of power that that uh can be abused are abused, uh, that, that's something that we can examine within this genre. Um and yeah, and and in particular the southern um universities, and it's it's not only UGA, but a lot of This is a conversation that has been going on for especially in the last few years the the names that are on uh college university buildings and how we still haven't really had a real conversation. And in my mind, the university is a good place to have those conversations, and we still really haven't done that.
0: Yeah, I know certainly my um, I went to Davidson College, which is also in the south and was also founded you know before the civil war, and there. Are having very very um long and serious conversations about names of buildings and you know sort of facing up to the history of the early history of the institution where where you know, slavery was a part of what what was going on then in the 1830s in in the south um in, in addition to that history though you you also paint at times a pretty stark portrait of academia you say i'm gonna i'm gonna pull a few quotes here that it's a place of vicious departmental meetings, infighting and backstabbing, petty gossip, adjuncts living in poverty, underage drinking, sexual assault, hazing, cheating, lying. Um, Sort of a two-part question, like how, how bad is the situation on campuses today? And also like how, you alluded to this a little earlier, how disconnected is academia from, for want of a better term, the real world?
1: Yeah, I think well, well. First, I have to say that is Marlit speaking and not me. So, yes,
0: no, I understand. Yeah, <laughs> the, the,
1: the detective, she has, but it is of course this first person narration. I have this history, of course, um, with having spent a long time at the university on both sides as a student and professor. Um, she is much. I think I see a bit more nuance with everything. Uh, in the, in the world in which she exists than she herself does. She has very strong opinions. She was very fun to write, I will say, because she has these strong opinions. But but for me, even, even the things she says about Greek life, I see much, much more nuance than I think she does. And I try to put, uh, in terms of Greek life, other characters in the novel that provide a counterbalance to just how strong her opinions are, and even um, members of the fraternity themselves who don't conform to this really rigid picture that she has of Greek life for her own personal reasons. Um, But yeah, I think right now we are I mean, there is a huge crisis in academia, um, both in terms of the labor force. There was an opinion piece recently in the New York Times that really highlighted this uh, in and in, and in also talking about dark academia, this turned to a, an adjunct labor force, a contingent faculty force where you have a lot of 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 faculty members professors who are are living in poverty you know as they as they teach these students are often um some are privileged but some are also really um taking on a lot of debt in order to attend uh the college campuses um and there are increasing i mean so i left teaching in twenty. 21 was my last year teaching, and that was right, you know, the, the last semester I taught, it was still online, it was remote teaching, but, and so it was during COVID, but even before that, we were really seeing an increase in student alienation, isolation, rates of depression on campus, that the, the university and colleges are struggling to keep up with, so they're not able to sort. Provide, or, or they haven't provided the mental health services to meet the needs of the students. And that's another huge problem when you think about these students who are often away from home, they're away from their, their support networks, the people that they would turn to who then maybe are having crises and then are having to wait a week. Right. But without parents to turn to maybe the the friends that they have back home to turn to. So I think there's a there's a lot to talk about in those terms too and the university could be doing a better job to address those things.
0: yeah, we have a a friend who just started as a freshman at a large state university and we I, we saw her you know she was home and we're like, oh how how are you home so soon?" And she goes, well, we it's a mental health day um, and so they were actually giving them I think it's one day a month where they give them, a longer weekend. So it and because it's a state university, many of the students are in state and, and can therefore go home for, for a couple of days. And, and um, you know, we'll see what the effectiveness of, of something like that is. Now you alluded to Marlott's attitude towards uh Greek life and you said that your own attitude is more a little more nuanced. Um Give, give us a taste of, of what her attitude is and, and how you see it in a little more nuanced way. Because I think your nuanced attitude does come out somewhat, you know, behind not necessarily in Marlot's voice, but in, in the things that play out.
1: Yes, I, I hope that even though she has really strong opinions that there are other other voices, there are other characters who argue for the benefits of greek life and i mean speaking to what we were just talking about a uh, mental health students feeling isolated and alienated on campus Greek life can provide that community for students who who don't, wouldn't otherwise have, have met other people. Even my my mother was in a, a sorority at the University of Georgia and she will I mean, it's hard for me to believe it because she will talk to anyone and everyone now, but as a student, she was incredibly shy and she really feels like she wouldn't have had any friends were it not for the members of her sorority, some of whom she still keeps in touch with, does things with. And so for me, I see that nuance, I see that it can it can provide that that community for students who really, really need it. At the same time, you know, and, and this is put into the voice of Marlette, I also do know the statistics, I do watch the news, I do see that at least one um, member of fraternity has died every year, you know, for the last... I don't know, several decades, um, there are higher rates of sexual assault that happen. Um, women in sororities are more likely to be victims of sexual assault, so there are real issues that need to be addressed. Um, the culture of, of course, binge drinking, which is what leads to a lot of these fraternity related deaths, all of these things are things that need to change, and for Marlid, Um, so switching to her perspective, she's someone who grew up in a college town surrounded by this environment. Uh, So that in and of itself, I think, gives her, uh, and she just is the type of person who has strong opinions by nature, but she really being surrounded by this from a young age, her mother working at the university, living in this small town, a college town, has these opinions, but then she herself has had a an experience that has really shaped the way that she's um, sees Greek life and she really she sees no gray area when it comes to to Greek life, where other characters that she comes into contact with and members of the fraternity themselves so there's. You know there's uh, trip who's one of the fraternity members who just wants to help the investigation who's on scholarship um, there's another character named Cade and he just wants to hang out with his girlfriend, you know? So there there are characters that she's coming into contact with who actually don't conform to what she thinks, but she has a really strong opinion that that's going to be hard to to sway her.
0: Uh, yeah, or, yeah. And she, Marla actually even collects these examples of, of right. Greek misbehavior and tragedy and, and cruelty. Um, and the, the fact that she is, is so single-minded in that at times isolates her from, both the people she's investigating and the and the people who are assisting in her investigation. Um, I think there are great advantages to having an isolated protagonist in a thriller, but I wonder if you would sort of share your thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, I think that's for me too, as a reader, that's the kind of protagonist I, I want to root for is the one who um, has a troubled backstory or or you know, as frustrated as you get with some of their actions, they're, they they are on a mission, and I think it's fun to follow that kind of that kind of character who has uh, really strong opinions and a really strong agenda, and they're not going to let anything get in their way. Um, so so yes, for me, that's I think a lot of my favorite detectives um, or thriller heroes and heroines. They they fall into that kind of trope.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, let's, let's talk about writing and research a little bit. I, I think I, I've been going on tour a lot lately with my latest novel, which is a thriller. And I get this question about, um, you know, where do you find out this or how do you research that? And one of the ways I begin to answer that question is to say, I think as writers, I think I can speak for the group when I say that none of us want the FBI to go look in our search history. Uh, <laughs> Right. You you seem to know an awful lot about what happens to a dead body in the first few right. minutes after death and um, right. some things like that. So tell us a little bit about about your research into the world of death, of murder, of investigation, um, you know, aside from the college setting, but just that, how those things sort of play out.
1: Yes, I think you're right. I mean, it's it's hard for me to imagine what writing this novel would look like pre Google, right? I, yeah. I Google everything, and I would hate. I mean, if someone was staring over my shoulder and seeing what I was googling, they would really I think wonder about uh, my state of mind. But yeah, I read a lot of. I mean, and that's also the beauty too is that um, so a lot of police officers, even detectives, have written you know, blog post on a day in the life, right? What, what their day, day day-to-day existence looks like. You can, of course, Google what happens. So, um, uh, what happens in a pedestrian accident or a pedestrian fatality? All of those were things that I looked up, um, uh, and then there there's some other things that happened that I did a lot of research um but I, I think they might be a, a spoiler to reveal <laughs> yeah uh so there's there's just a lot that I think you can now find up um, just by by reading uh online and by reading about people's experiences online
0: and then you have the this idea of, of Greek life and the fraternity where there are huge parts of that life where sort of the whole point of them is that they are kept secret from outsiders. Um, and And both you as a writer and Marla as the investigator have to try to try to crack through that facade where you know without again, without spoilers, were you able to um, find out a little bit about what happens behind that curtain, or are you just imagining it based on sort of general ideas?
1: Well, I remember, I think it was in a master class by Margaret Atwood, she talked about writing The Handmaid's Tale. And she said that one of her rules for herself in writing The Handmaid's Tale was that anything that she put into that story had to have happened at somewhere, someplace in time, so that she couldn't be accused of having kind of this twisted mind that just invented these things. And so I tried to apply that rule for myself and for this story. So a lot of what's talked about in the novel. And, you know, you mentioned that line where Marlet talks about that she collects these, these stories, these horrible stories, those were pulled from the headlines. Those are, those are things that happened, um, like the, the rape bait email and stuff like that from the George tech fraternity. Those are all things that were in the news. Um, and there have been, uh, fraternity members who have, who have written, you know, pieces on what their experiences were after the fact, right? After they've left. Um, there's a, a great book by, um, I think it's John Heschinger called True Gentlemen, And he spent two years um, going to different fraternity meetings, uh, spending a lot of time investigating these different um, fraternity-related deaths that had happened, um, that provided a really good resource and a lot of good context. And so kind of the nuance of, yes, it is providing this, this community. Um, but, and it is, um, it's a culture that needs to change. Um, and I also, as, I had friends who were in fraternities. I had friends who were willing to share some things with me too. I witnessed things when I went to fraternity parties, um, when I myself was a student. So it's everything except for, I think, perhaps um, the kind of main events. And there's a scene. Well, even that is somewhat inspired of everything's inspired by something except for, I think, the central central mystery. And so that was my way to, to uh, follow that, that rule by Margaret Atwood.
0: So you this this novel begins as you said the the question in this novel is posed very early on in when this um supposedly accident but we we suspect maybe it's not an accident um takes place and the and the question is who you know who is this person why did they die what are, what are the what are the specific circumstances um tell us a little bit about how you structure the book did you did you know the answer to that question before you started writing and and how do you manage the flow of information in a mystery when do you decide it's time for the for the reader to know something and when's it time to to withhold things from them
1: yeah i think throughout a thriller you're you're asking and answering a lot of questions there's the the main question of who did it but then there's all the um i guess red herrings we could say that you throw in there but then you also need to answer those questions too you can't leave leave those red herrings um open-ended so I think starting for me, starting with that, that question at the beginning, that's maybe also what marks a thriller because that really ramps up the pace of having this, this incident, inciting incident, so to speak. Um, I The story came to me in two parts. The first was in Marlet's voice. It was that prologue that I mentioned earlier that was was initially meant to be the prologue, but then ended up happening about midway through. And I just, I saw that whole scene. I heard it in her voice. Um, I would say more, but I feel like it's a bit of a spoiler. Um, So it started with her and her voice. I just heard it very clearly. And then I had this other, the more central mystery idea that came to me separately. And so to a certain extent, it was melding those two. Um, I knew to a certain extent the why um and the how but then it was it was connecting those pieces and I will say I have this bad habit where I just want to write 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 and I get about 60,000 words in and then I'm like an outline would have been good <laughs> <And> <laughs> you know I've, I've written all this and then especially with the thriller because you're right the plotting is so important and then I find myself okay, laying out what do I have? Actually, does everything make sense in this order? Would it be more suspenseful if I moved certain certain questions around, certain answers around? And and I still, um, I, uh, uh, there will be a second book in this series. I was a little bit better at outlining that one, but I'm now working on another book that I, it's like I didn't learn from my mistakes and I'm now at that part where I have 70,000 words and I'm having to go back and make an outline. and it's, it's a mess. And I I know everyone has a different process, but I, yeah, I, one day maybe I'll learn and I'll start with an outline, but to this day, I haven't done that. Yeah.
0: Well, one of the ways that I connected with your main character is that Marlit and myself are both faculty kids. Um, my, my dad taught English here at Wake Forest for 40 years. And I, and I grew up in that world where as a faculty child, um, you're kind of like, part of the university and then also not part of the university and I wondered if you could talk about how you how you take advantage of that duality as Marlett moves through the novel.
1: Oh so I love that you grew up in that in that world right because I think that probably does give you a perspective. And I think for me, because Marlitt's mother is a German professor, which is what I was, um, it was a way for me to pull in what, you know, they say to write what you know. And so it was a way to, to pull in what I knew, but because she, as you said, isn't, she isn't a part of the university. She didn't even attend the university of Georgia. She went to Georgia state, right. Which is in Atlanta and it's a completely different kind of institution. And so she has, An outsider's perspective, but with some internal knowledge right from from witnessing these things from hearing her mother talk about the issues that she sees on campus from just being immersed in that world and yet because she has this outsider knowledge she can she can provide some of the critiques that either aren't visible from within or, of course there can be higher stakes from voicing those critiques from within. So she has a a different perspective and a little bit different voice in order to do that.
0: And of course, the other thing that's quite obvious about Marlet is her gender. And I think gender plays a a kind of an important role in this novel. How, how How does it work for her? I mean, is she treated differently because of her gender and how does she deal with that or has she dealt with that in the past?
1: So in the force, we know her her boss, the lieutenant Barry Truman. He himself has very specific ideas of um, the roles of men and women in society, but also men and women in the in the force. And his his behavior, I think, he would argue, is chivalrous. Um, but really, for lit it comes across as quite patronizing. Right? He wants to protect her from. From the worst worst cases protect her from violence which again in his mind is he's doing her in a favor but in her mind she's being treated differently than, than her partner Teddy um, who's a man and then also Oliver who's another um, detective that they work closely with and this is a big source of frustration for her and I think also adds to her really feeling as if she needs to prove herself but also her tendency to work outside the lines because she feels like the lines have been drawn differently for her
0: Mm -hmm. um to to go back to craft for a second um every now and then i just have to write down sentences because they just jump out at me and i love it and and i just love the sound of this sentence most days aren't occupied by murder and manhunts but by paperwork and politics now i'm one of those people who believes there's a lot of space for alliteration in writing some people are like no no alliteration but i like the way word sound. I'm fascinated by that. Um, how important is that to you, the sound of what you're writing? And and at what point in the writing process does that kick in? Is that from the very beginning, or is that in, in revision or editorial? Uh,
1: well, thank you, because I love talking about the structure of sentences and the rhythm of sentences. Yeah. I think that's probably what I spend the most time Worrying over rereading I read it out loud to see how it sounds I really think that you know it's not only poetry that can have a focus and an attention to to words and sound and rhythm but but that prose can too, in fact, one of the uh, there was an early review. I think on Instagram where someone said that, um, there was only, there was almost an an anal attention to the writing style (laughs) or something. And I thought, yes, yes, there is. I, I spent so much time thinking about, thinking about these things. So, so yeah, I, I agree. I, um, I think sometimes when I'm, I'm first writing, it's just get, get my thoughts out on the page, but certainly even, even the first round of me going back, I'm really thinking about, okay, what's, how can I make this sound the best? And I think sometimes I even put near rhymes <laughs> in, in in the in the prose, and I I have had to go back and say, okay, like this is getting too much. You don't need this, need to be this rhyming. This is starting to sound a bit strange. Um, but I th- I think a lot about the sound, and and I do one way um, to to see whether or not it sounds right is that i read it out loud and see how it sounds out loud
0: yeah i think i think that's a really helpful thing i um my most recent novel i was finished with the manuscript right about the time we got locked down and so i did what i'd never done before i always give it to my wife to read but this time i read it out loud to her and it was great i mean we both found all kinds of things that uh were ripe for improvement um there's other lines that i write down not necessarily because of the way they sound although these lines sound great but because of their their content. And this was one that really struck me. Um, you write, they lie because lying is second nature. All day long, they're telling stories about who they are, why they do what they do, where they're always the hero of their own narrative. We all do it. Um, I mean, fiction itself is a lie. So this is kind of a meta question. But I mean, to what extent is is lying a part of human nature? And, and how do we we harness that as as fiction writers
1: yeah i think truth and lies are something that when i was writing this i was thinking a lot about i started writing it in 2018 and all of the sudden uh, and maybe this is naive of me, but you know, as a child, you grow up and there, there's a clear distinction between truth and lies. And then it felt very much so that all of a sudden those distinctions were being erased, and someone could lie, and just if they kept insisting that what they said was the truth, even if they were caught in the lie, even if there was evidence presented otherwise, it was still presented as people could have their own truths. And so I think that's something I was just in general thinking about when I was working on the novel is, is this distinction and, and what is truth? And then you're right. Fiction in itself is um, completely made up. So it is a, it is a lie. And how do you, how do you challenge that from within?
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, one of the other uh, things that I, I find uh, among the most disturbing that goes on in academia these days is Um, this sort of rampant cheating that seems to be just accepted um, at every level. You have one character who's who's talking about cheating who says um, uh, what if it doesn't catch up with them? What if they cheat, get away with it and keep doing it? What kind of lesson is that? And, And thrillers and detective stories are usually about finding the person who has done something wrong and then punishing them for the thing that they've done wrong and maybe they'll learn a lesson or maybe they'll spend the rest of their lives in prison or whatever. But obviously there are too many misdeeds in the world for them to all go punished. What truth do you get at by talking about cheaters who never get caught?
1: Yeah, I think that there, and again, as a professor, this is something you, you think about too, because of course you are there to teach the subject that you're teaching, but you are also aware that students are learning life lessons in your classroom, right? As pivotal age. And I think that that's what Marlet is I think it's I'm not sure who says it if it's Marlet um you know thinking about this or if it's yes. um, letter um but uh but I think that's what she's getting at that there are these these young people at this time of their life where they are soaking up information they're they're learning you know not just the the subjects in their classroom but also these these real truths and and uh, life lessons and that if there's no consequence to cheating, what does that mean, you know, as they move forward in life and into the quote-unquote real world outside of outside of the university? And I think we see in the novel and in other uh, events that take place actually, if if this is reinforced, that you can break the rules and get away with it, that there are higher stakes, right, that, that are at play.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, f- I find it odd that people spend tens of thousands of dollars to go to a university to get educated and then refuse to be educated and, and just copy somebody else's education. I don't know. That, that That's not one I can quite wrap my head around. But um, okay, so one more. I'm going to go one more passage. Obviously, I liked the writing in this book because I keep quoting passages. Um, <laughs> and, and this is just one for you to unpack for us a little bit. Um, I, again, I Think this is the protagonist talking, but I but you know, I write these things down when I'm in a hurry and I come across them in the book, but but here it is. The tightrope walker is careful, every fiber of her being attuned to the vibration of the rope, the expanse of air beneath her feet. The rest of us are just racing across shingles, too sure of our own purpose to secure a lifeline before we're tumbling backward into nothingness. Just just talk to us a little bit about what's going on in that passage.
1: Uh, so it's interesting because when you read that passage, I actually had a very vivid image in my head because something outside my window, when I was sitting at my desk, inspired that line. And I was watching, um, my neighbors across the street were having their roof redone. And I was watching the roofers run across again, just, you know, with no, not no harness, no nothing, just run across the roof as they were throwing off shingles. And I was just mesmerized by that. But then I, of course thought, well, how can I, how can I use this? Um, and, and that inspired that line, but I think also, yeah, it's a, it's a, that idea of, there are certain people who, who will, you know, they will safety strap, they will harness, they will do everything. They'll think three steps ahead and that's how they approach life. And then there are other types of people who, don't and who will you know either at risk to themselves, at risk to other people without without fear or thought of the consequence can move through life that way. And in marlet's mind, at times I think this is a kind of privilege to to move through life that way without thought of consequence um, for for your own safety or for others.
0: Yeah, yeah, and privilege is certainly something, and we touched on this in several ways that comes into this novel in a lot of a lot of different ways, and and we have. We see people who, um, you know, have different types of privileges, not just the, the sort of the obvious ones. And um, there's just a lot to unpack here. I, I think readers are gonna have a great time with this. I'm glad to know there's a second one coming along. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually headed to a conference on a great big college campus this weekend. So I'm gonna be really careful while I'm crossing the street, I promise. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. We like to end um, every episode of Inside the Writer Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully you'll give our listeners a little insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. Right. What word do you love to work into your writing?
1: Truth, but m- maybe more as a concept to mm-hmm. what we were just <laughs> talking about than, than for it as a word, but truth as a concept. No.
0: Okay. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing?
1: Bone used as a metaphor.
0: Okay. Um, Where's your favorite place to write?
1: So recently I have some friends, they've been very generous and they've been letting me go up to, they have a cabin in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And so I've been going up there, just taking the dog, really isolating myself. And it's of course beautiful this time of year, but it's very peaceful and it's good for me to write without distraction.
0: Where could you never write?
1: in a new city because I would want to get out and explore and I don't think I'd be able to sit still long enough to write.
0: (laughs) To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention?
1: Maybe incomplete sentences. Okay. What was
0: the first book you remember reading?
1: I have a distinct memory, I think it was in third grade, of going to the, the school library and wanting to check out Uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and being told by the librarian that that was a little bit too advanced, I think, for my reading level, and being very proud because I was very confident in my reading skills. uh, And that I, you know, I insisted that I read the book. And then, of course, I went on and I read the rest of the series. So it, it would have to be something from the Chronicles of Narnia.
0: What are you reading now?
1: So I just finished The Gargoyle, Um, and I just picked up, um, and that's by Andrew Davidson. And then I just picked up, uh, welcome to the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan.
0: Um, what book would you like to have written?
1: The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Saffron, just as I think anyone who loves books, that's just captures the magic of, of reading.
0: What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will?
1: Uh, well, this is a book I'd like to rewrite because I wrote a horrible draft years and years ago. It's a historical fiction novel, which I have much respect for, for you writing historical fiction and the, just the sheer amount of research, but then not getting bogged down by that research and, and telling the story. Um, so historical fiction novel on the life of who who is the wife of a, uh, Germanic soldier who led the. The revolution against, or the revolt against, the invading Roman Empire in 9 AD.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you?
1: Well, I think uh, to a certain extent you did that for me already, where you really talked about the writing, and I think for me to to be able to dive deep, and I I am a former literature professor, so I really love to dive deep into the language. Um, so I think that you know, that they they had that appreciation on a sentence level for my work. Um, that would be something that I really, really wanted to hear. But I think anytime a reader tells you that they stayed up all night reading, that's that's obviously a, a huge compliment. So, yeah.
0: well, this has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And my guest today has been Lauren Nossett, whose novel The Resemblance is available wherever books are sold. Lauren, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much, Charlie.
0: Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. The holidays are almost upon us, so I'll be taking a break from the podcast during December, but I'll be back in January with all new episodes. Until then, thanks for joining us, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.